Alright, so welcome everyone. We have quite a crowd tonight. Good to see people interested in the Dhamma. The Buddha said, Dhamma kamo bhavang hoti. One who is attracted to the Dhamma, who is kama. You see, Dhamma kamo, kama is generally we use it as a bad word, but to mean attachment or desire. And the Buddha said, one who is desirous of practicing the Dhamma or hearing the Dhamma or uh, likes the Dhamma, let's put it that way. Bhavang Hoti is someone who is um, distinguished. So, thanks everyone for coming tonight. The Dhamma that we chanted tonight is perfect for a Dhamma talk. I've given the Dhamma talk on this before. I've even written something on this sutta. This is, does anyone know what sutta this comes from? Where are scholars out there? Oh, we have a scholar. We have a winner. The Girimananda Sutta. So what's the story of Girimananda? Girimananda, I think. He was sick. He was sick and Ananda said, Please, Lord Buddha, out of compassion would you go and see Girimananda? Because maybe if you go, he will get better. And the Buddha said, Well, maybe if you go, he'll get better. <laughs> no, he didn't quite say it like that. The Buddha said, Well, maybe, Ananda, if you go and teach him the Dasasanya, the ten perceptions, maybe he'll get better. And he said, so what are the ten perceptions? And then he taught these ten perceptions, which are really a comprehensive um, reminder, a remembrance of a Buddhist approach or a Buddhist perspective of the world. Right, from a Buddhist point of view, What's the world like? What's what's how do we view reality? So these ten perceptions are something that see the word sanya means remembrance or uh, memory or a perception how we how we recognize recognition you might say. Uh, but the meaning here is is something that we should recollect and. The Buddha could see that, I guess, Girimananda had had forgotten these things and needed a reminder. And so he instructed Ananda to to uh, encourage him with his teaching and give him some peace of mind, help him to deal with the sickness. And Ananda went, and indeed Girimananda got better just by hearing these things through the power of the Dhamma. So, they often will chant this when people are sick as a result, but I think it's kind of wishful thinking because the, normally the sick people don't have a clue what's being said. The point is that through practicing these things, through, through recollecting these things, it heals the mind, it makes the mind strong and powerful 
keeps the mind from clinging. So these are recollections that we do as a matter of course during our practice. Starting with the first one, anicca sanya, this is a simple one. Seeing impermanence. The first two are actually related, so we should deal with them together. And it, it actually relates to what we were what we were studying the past three days, no? the three suttas, the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, the Anattalakana Sutta, and the, the Adita Pariyaya Sutta. The second two, anyway, the Anattalakana Sutta is, deals with the five aggregates. The um, Adita Pariyaya Sutta deals with the six senses. So here again we have the five aggregates and the six senses. Curious thing is, here the Buddha says that there are the the five aggregates are impermanent, whereas in, in the Anattalakana Sutta, the the emphasis was on the fact that the five aggregates are 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 non-self. But it, there is a connection there because if you look at how the Buddha starts the Anattalakana Sutta, he starts by pointing out the fact that they're impermanent, and this is important because one of the the best ways to understand non-self is through the other two characteristics. People always have a difficult time understanding non-self and what does it mean to say that something is anatta. It's easy to understand anicca and dukkha, but anatta is difficult sometimes for people to understand. So we understand it through anicca. The point being, if, if something is impermanent, you can't say that it, it it is yours and it belongs to you and it's it's controllable. Or the same with dukkha. If something is is going to dissatisf is going to leave you unsatisfied, dissatisfy you, you can't say that it's self. And so, the one of the a, an easier way to understand the five aggregates is through impermanence. But at any rate, the the truth about these first two is that you could just as easily switch them. I think. I wouldn't. I, I'm, don't quote me on that, but quite clearly, they're both anicca, dukkha, and anatta, and they're both. There's two ways of understanding reality. The Buddha. Um, they say that the Buddha taught different. Sometimes he would teach the six senses, and sometimes he would teach the five aggregates, and sometimes he would teach the uh, the datus. Sometimes the the eighteen datus or the. 20-some indriya, he would teach different things for different people. Because if you, some people have attachment to the mind, some people have attachment to the body, and some people have attachment to both. So for those people who have attachment to the mind, the Buddha would teach the five aggregates. The first aggregate is body, but the rest are mind. Most of it is mostly to do with the mind. For those people who were attached to the body, he would teach the not the six senses, but it's called the ayatana. And I believe that's what we've got here, right? Yeah, we've, this isn't the six senses, this is the twelve ayatana. we got the eye and, and form, the ear and sound, the nose and, sm the, the nose and smell, the tongue and taste, the body and uh, feeling, and the thought, the mind and thought. And this, this he would teach, they say, for people who are attached to the body, because it's mostly physical. It's all physical except for the mind and sometimes Dhamma. I believe Dhamma can also, thoughts can also be, mind objects can also be physical, I'm not sure. 
Dhamma can be either mental or physical, I think. And sometimes he would teach the ayatana because they're for people who, for people who are attached to both because or not the ayatana the datu the datu are the uh, the six the six senses seeing hearing smelling taste the six senses the eye the ear the nose the tongue the body and the heart and the objects of sense sight sound smells taste feelings and thoughts. And then the consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. Um, and that's because if you count them up, it's almost it's almost even. So we have the six consciousnesses are, are my, mental. Then you've got the mind is mental, thoughts can be mental, so let's say... Seven, seven and a half are mental, and ten and a half are physical. Something like that. But the 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 point I want to make here is that they're really all the same thing, and you can. It's referring to the same thing in different forms. It's referring to experience. Reality is not something difficult to understand. It's 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 experience. You sometimes see things, you sometimes hear things, you sometimes smell, you sometimes taste, you sometimes feel, you sometimes think. But whatever arises, all of that fits under the heading of experience. And that's what we focus on in our meditation. We come to see that all of experience, all every bit of reality is impermanent, suffering and non-self, is incapable of satisfying incapable of bringing peace, happiness or freedom from suffering and in fact delivers stress stress, pain and and suffering when we cling to them when we cling to, the, to, to it everything in everything that arises does this because it's impermanent so when we begin to look at, at experience and look at reality and, and realize for ourselves that everything is impermanent and so, that all, all things that arise are impermanent, they're unsatisfying, they're uncontrollable, then we don't cling to them. So when you see something that you don't like or when you hear something that you don't like, you don't become upset about it. The, the disliking doesn't arise. You simply experience it for what it is. You see it for what it is. It's arising, it's ceasing. The the idea of clinging to it can't arise because you know that it's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to do any good to cling to it. It's not going to make you happy. It's not going to bring you peace. It's not going to bring you happiness. And so these are these are the essence of vipassana, seeing impermanence and, and suffering and non-self, the, the the three characteristics. Because it's what arrests, it's what it's what removes this idea, this whole idea of clinging to things, of chasing after things from the mind, of being of reacting to things.
like a car. Would you get in and drive a car if you knew you couldn't control it? If there was, if you, or would you get in? Suppose you got in a big power uh, forklift, no, uh, one of those backhoes or something. And if you knew you couldn't drive it, would you turn it on and try to try to drive it anyway? That we, you wouldn't do such a thing. We wouldn't drive a vehicle if we knew we weren't capable of of operating it. And this is what happens when you start to look at reality and you realize how out of control it is. You realize that your own mind is out of con out of your control. We realize this in a day in our daily life, but our reaction is the opposite. Our reaction is to try to make these things controllable. It's to try to make things permanent. It's to try to make things satisfying. We see impermanent suffering and non-self. We see it daily, and we're constantly fighting against it. We're constantly rejecting the truth that you can't control things that they can't satisfy you. And so, so this is this is the reality that we live with, and this is the the conflict that you see in in the world around in the, in the world at large in the world in general people trying to change reality trying to reject the truth deny in denial you might say so our lives we try to set up our lives as as stable as possible right we want to get a good education. We want to make a lot of money. I think if we have a big fat bank account, we'll be, our lives will be stable. Sure. We try to eat well. We try to exercise to make our bodies healthy so we will all be, be safe from disease and, and stress and suffering. We try to surround ourselves with pleasant things constantly fighting against the reality that suffering is waiting just around the corner we don't know when it's coming and well and in fact it comes every, it comes all the time to rich people to poor people suffering comes it comes right here sitting here right you would think that this at least would allow us freedom from suffering sitting here but it it doesn't even if your body is is free from pain or aches or soreness for a moment Still, the mind will create so much suffering from moment to moment because of the things that we want and can't get or the things that we don't like, things that upset us. How, bored, how the mind becomes bored and disinterested, unhappy, dissatisfied. And we try to control everything. We try to force ourselves to be this way or that. We try to force ourselves... Even our own selves we try to force. And other people we try to force. It's, you might say, even more more ridiculous. We try to force ourselves to be this way or that, and that doesn't work. And so we're dissatisfied with ourselves. We tend to dislike ourselves. Uh, we're, we're dissatisfied with ourselves. We feel guilty because of how inadequate we are. And so we go around trying to change everyone else instead. We for try to force other people to be like this, to be the way we want. It's much easier to teach other people than it is to teach yourself, but you don't get nearly the same results teaching other people. So we learn that this isn't the case. We learn that this isn't 
useful in any way trying to force things you're trying to build a, a castle out of sand Or as the Buddha, I think, in the Buddha said, a castle on in the sky. You're trying to build a castle in the sky. You can't possibly succeed. You build something up, and then it falls apart. And you never, you never find, you never get to the point where you, everything is stable, because it's called sankara. Sankara is like the sand castle. You build it up and build it up. Think about, would you ever want to live in a castle made of sand? Would you ever think it's safe and secure? If someone said to you, look, I've got this wonderful castle here and it's going to uh, be a, a safe and comfortable place to live and you see that it's made out of, it's just a sand castle. You'd think the person, of course, was crazy. But that's really how we are, trying to live our lives as though death wasn't around the corner or trying to live our lives as though everything was stable and secure and permanent and if you look at the lessons people learn if you look at the reality around us you see that it's not the case you can't control so those are the first two they're the important ones the third one subhasanya has to do with seeing that the body is not beautiful and this is a particularly useful one for monks because monks are uh, sworn to give up uh, the attraction to the body and so it's something that is important to remind yourself remember sanya means a reminder so you have to remind yourself from time to time and and it, this isn't this isn't there's nothing in here that says uh, you know there's nothing in the meditation that says it's disgusting the buddha says Asuchino means it is, uh, uh, what's the word, this impure, full of impurities. But he says you, you see this not by saying this is bad, this is ugly, this is disgusting. You say, what's in the body? In this body there is head, there is hair, head, body hair, hair, head, head, head hair, English much, head, hair, body hair nails, teeth, skin, uh, flesh, uh, tendons, bones, you know. bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, pleura, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, undigested food in the stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, synovial fluid, and urine. There's no diamonds on this list, you see. <laughs> There's not, not one of these things is made of gold. There's no roses. There's no sugar and spice. I don't... <laughs> you don't have sugar and spice. What are boys made of? What's the other part of this, that, that poem? I don't think you see any of that either. I forget the, the boys part. But girls are supposed to be made of sugar and spice and all things nice. <laughs> so we have to write it in there, no? We have to add. No, I don't see it. So you go over this and you start to see that, hmm, well, they say, 
They say beauty is only skin deep. Well, it's not even skin deep. It's maybe makeup deep if you go that far. Because you can put, um, you can put nice. You can put. You can wear golden rings and golden necklaces. You can wear diamonds and flowers in your hair and so on. But but it stops there. The rest of it is actually. It's just because we have we have a, a different kind of sanya. We have a different kind of habitual idea of of what the body is like, and that that it's habitual and that it's artificial, and that it's not based on reality. You can see if you look at dogs, for example. Now it's it's. I suppose it's not impossible, but it's it's probably fairly difficult to find a human being who is incredibly attracted to. To dogs of the opposite gender, or I mean, you could go further and, and find you know, animals that are that human beings are certainly not attracted to. But I, I think, in general, we can agree that dogs are not very attractive, and yet dogs are attracted to each other, just in the way that humans are attracted to each other as well. So the fact that we see beauty, it's a sanya, it's a perception. There's nothing intrinsically beautiful about the body. So in order to see this, see through this, we don't have to be negative about the body. We simply have to remind ourselves what's really there. And we, we look at it piece by piece. In fact, in the Visuddhimagga, it's it's really one of the best parts of the Visuddhimagga. The whole book is incredible, but one of the great parts is reading about these pieces of the bo- parts of the body because you would have never thought, we, I, I would have never thought on my own uh, in such detail, what these things are actually like, like hair on the head. It's they, they, in this Visuddhimagga. He says it's it's like um, like grass or something that you like rice growing in 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 oil and and blood and and uh, skin dead skin. That's what the hair of the head head is, and it's greasy and it's smelly and and so on. And so you 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 objectively look. What color is it? What smell? What does it smell like? And so on. What does it taste like? What does it look like? And it goes through all of these the thirty-two parts of the body, and it's quite interesting. So it's a useful one, something to wake us up and help us to see. It helps to let go of the body, and then you feel so re- relieved. You don't have to worry about your body. You have, you know, chip teeth and stained teeth and you have uh, I don't know bad skin, coarse skin or you have chipped nails, I don't know Uh, your hair is the wrong color, your hair is the wrong length you don't have to worry about it anymore because you start, you see that it's you know you, you, you you can maybe make it you can maybe make it smell good and look good for hours at a time, but then you have to do it all over again. You have to hide the impurities of the body. We're constantly, just in order to interact with people in this world, we're constantly having to hide the impurities of the body from 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 society. Otherwise, we'd all we'd be we'd ch- we'd be chased out of society because of the smell and the way we look. But the reality of it is that it's not something certainly that we should be concerned about. It's just physical. physical. It's just matter.
But most important is that it removes the idea of beauty, the attachment to the body as being beautiful, which is an incredibly uh, strong perception. The Buddha said there's no greater attachment, there's no greater atta uh, sight that men attach to, heterosexual men, cling to or 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 get, become attached to than the 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 form of a woman, and vice versa. There's no greater attachment, greater form that women, heterosexual women, attach to, than the form of men. So important to to understand and to overcome and to see it simply for what it is. It's not real. It's not. It's not even natural. You see, this is the argument people always have. Well, it's natural to be attached, to, to be attracted. But is it really? What does it mean to say that it's natural? It means that it's been evolved. Just, you know, if you look at from a physical science point of view, it's just kind of evolved by mistake. And the Buddhism would say it's evolved completely by mistake. There are three three theories of, of evolution, or three theories of the origin of, of species. One they call intelligent design. This is the Christ, what the Christians believe and theists believe that that there was an intelligent creator. The second one is evolution, or I think they have another name for it. I can't remember what it's called. And the third is unintelligent design. This is the Buddhist theory. So it was an unintelligent creator. We we created it ourselves out of not out of intelligence. We created ourselves out of our own stupidity. This is the Buddhist theory of of creation, of origin of the species. So, and but if you if you look at it, there's no reason why it should be this way and not be another way. It's just a for the purpose of perpetuating itself. The species perpetuates itself by sexual attraction. That's all. If you think uh, it's a good thing to have lots and lots of humans, or if you think the human form is somehow um, the ideal uh, form of existence, then by all means this is something good to be attached, to get people atta attracted to each other. This is what you do if you want more chill, more 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 birth, right? But if you look objectively at it, being a human is not perfect. Human beings are certainly not perfect. If they were made in God's image, then God's had a pretty poor self-image, I think. So we could certainly do better than this. I mean, why sh why aren't we full of sugar and spice and all things nice? Wouldn't that be more fun? angels and so on, you know, stardust. Why aren't we just stardust? Why do we have to suffer? Why do we have pain? Why do we have old age, sickness and death? These are questions we don't ask because we're so steeped in this idea of um, humanity, of being a human. This is how we got here. The only way you can be born as a human is to be incredibly steeped in the idea of being a human. But it doesn't have to be this way. You can change you can see through it. You can objectively see that the body is just physical. You can overcome your attachment to the, the physical body, which is an incredibly empowering thing. It's like breaking free of the mold. Like You've got this prison 
of of your perceptions that is forcing you to see things in a certain way and you can be free from that you can free yourself from being a human being you can make yourself universal you can free yourself from the subjectivity of being a human being and become an objective being in the universe this is how you become like an angel for example you you become free from the contrived artificial uh, construct of being a human being you give up your attachment to suffering to to these ugly things you know really angels can smell human beings from i think a thousand leagues that's how bad we smell an angel can sm that's why we don't see angels very often apparently because they're not so keen on on visiting we smell bad and we think we're wonderful and beautiful and incredible we 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 convince ourselves that we're not the way we are we try to run to escape reality not realizing that there's a better way not realizing that we can be free from that that true happiness comes from just the opposite from letting go and straightening out the mind removing these imperceptions or these wrong perceptions from the mind so that one's useful asuba sanya is useful adinava sanya is quite useful as well maybe more on a no, on on a very real level, sickness. Adinawa means the the dangers of disadvantage. But sickness is is an incredible stimulator for meditation. Uh, stimulant. It helps encourage you in meditation quite well, and it encourages you to let go quite well, especially of the body. So there's this wonderful saying that I always remember: Bahu do ko ko ayangkayo. Bahu Adi Nobo. If you see it here, we chanted it tonight. <laughs> it's it's so totally Buddhist because no one else would want to remember such a thing. Bahu Dukho of great suffering indeed is this body of great disadvantage. Not very positive now, is it? Bahu Dukho Ko Ayangayo. Why would you want to say such a thing? Why would you purposefully focus on the problems with the body? Well, because the body is not ours. Uh, it's it's ours if you believe that this is all we've got. That all we've got is one life. Or, more importantly, if you believe in in the material universe, if you believe in the material body as existing as an entity. Or, or more, no, if you believe that we are the body. We are this body, and that's all we are. It's and and it's. This is not something that can simply be intellectualized away, because we do believe, to some extent, that we are the body. We do believe that that this is our life, and we are, we were born, and and we identify very much with the body. It's so pervasive that we 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 have to constantly be questioning ourselves on this 
and pulling ourselves out of our con- conceiving it it's it's kind of like how when you look when you watch the sun when you watch the sun it looks very much like the sun well don't look straight at the sun but you you watch the sun's tracks and it looks very much like the sun is going around the earth just like how the moon goes around the earth it looks like the sun is doing the same thing so it's easy to think that here the sun is going around the earth like the sun and the moon are chasing each other or something like that but in fact it's it's it and so so in order to in order to pull yourself out of this illusion you have to do some 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 brain work you have to actually pull yourself out of your perception so i mean it's kind of similar it's not exactly but the the idea is the same as that we have these perceptions that are take a lot of work i mean the god perception many people have grown up with and and maybe lifetime after lifetime have been had ingrained in them this idea of the creator god so it feels so comfortable to worship and to pray to god that people christians or or theists will often say that they because they felt it themselves that you you are inclined naturally to believe these things inclined naturally to follow a god and part of it might be our our attachment to our parents you know the idea of following our parents but we have we we have many um misperceptions about reality that are more comfortable and more nat feel more natural to us than reality this is because of the the, hab- the habits that we've created the artificial constructs we've set up for ourselves so we have to break these down often going against our perceptions this is important and it's it's very 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 it's it's important for buddhist practice to question yourself someone wrote on the internet it's this this saying that's going around it's it's so pernicious you know, because it sounds so good it's a one of those fake buddha quotes there's actually a site up now called fakebuddhaquotes.com i have i don't think i've ever been to it but i'm sure it's full of things that i see constantly on my feed um and this one says like don't believe don't believe what anyone tells you don't believe even what i say unless it agrees with your own reason and your own common sense the buddha quote the buddha but but if and then they they say it comes from this the kalama sutta But if you go and look at the Kalama Sutta, the Buddha actually says, "Don't believe your own reason. Don't believe your own common sense." He basically says, "Don't even believe your own intellect. Don't even believe logic." He says, "When you know for yourself that when you know, he uses the word know. When you know for yourself 
as though you see it when you see for yourself that something is good for you take that up when you know for yourself that something is bad for you and this means no not just think not just intuition you feel like it's good, right but when you know that it's bad for you or when you know that it's good for you when you know it's bad for you give it up even though you might want it even though you might scream and cry and your mind might scream to be given the things that you want even then give it up so that's what Adinava is helping us to see how the body is is what it is helping us to let go of the body why would you want to think that the body is suffering so that the mind because you're dealing with a little child here this thing that want this mind that doesn't have a clue what's good for it what's what's of its what's to its benefit so you have to show it something that you already know intellectually the brain is already aware of it but the heart is still chasing after these things chasing after the body so you teach yourself you change your habits and when you see that the body is suffering then you don't chase after the body you don't worry about the body you're not concerned you break your leg hmm, my leg's broken you get some some lethal some life what, what fatal disease you've got a fatal disease we've all got one it's called life so here the Buddha talks about in this one the Buddha talks about all sorts of sicknesses and just going over this is quite useful it helps you wake up and say yeah it really uh, not 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 the fun and games that we thought it was this body thing which which doesn't make you depressed it, it in fact enlightens you it, it, it makes you refreshed and invigorated you don't have to worry about the body anymore you, you realize that the most important thing is to train yourself not to worry not to be concerned not to be upset when the body uh, causes suffering okay so let's go try to go a little quicker through the rest of these next one pahana sanya pahana means to abandoning abandoning is 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 the next stage of the practice when you after you see impermanent suffering and non self pahana is the giving up that comes from it well and and here he's also talking about um avoiding kind of like um, refusing to f chase after thoughts of sensuality thoughts of of uh, ill will thoughts of oppression these have to do generally with other people um kama is lust when you have lust for or, or desire for generally another person, but it could be anything. Vyapada uh, means when you're upset about, uh, when you're angry at someone. But it can also be angry about, about anything. Vihingsa refers to wanting to oppress other people, so it has to do with arrogance and self-righteousness and conceit. It can also be repressing yourself, oppressing yourself. You have conceit against yourself, meaning thinking little of yourself feeling yourself inferior all of these thoughts should be done away with the Buddha said abandon them dispel them get rid of them cause them to attain non-existence anambhavangameti causes them to go to extinction 
and beyond that upanupane papakeya kusale dhammen they do the same for any arisen unwholesome states get rid of them abandon them dispel them get rid of them so you get rid of them you can get rid of them in different ways you can get rid of them by uh, their opposites so when you have anger you can think loving thoughts when you have lust you can think of um, asuba think of the repulsiveness of of the body gesa loma nakadanta tajo Um, but ultimately, the 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 best way to get to be free from these is through the abandoning of delusion. The only way to give up delusion, like conceit and arrogance and so on and all that, the delusion side, which is really the root of of greed and anger in the first place, is through insight, through seeing clearly. How do you dispel an angry thought? Look at what it is that's making you angry. When someone's yelling at you and it makes you very angry, say to yourself, hearing, hearing, try it. See what happens. Once you see hearing for hearing and it's just sound, it won't make you angry anymore. It doesn't have the power to make you angry anymore because you don't see it as a bad thing. Once you see things as they are, you get rid of these things. So it's a part of the practice. Um... It's kind of like an, a, a signal for us to begin to practice. When you feel angry, you realize, oh, you're not mindful. That's why you're angry. Then we have viraga and niroda. Viraga and niroda are, are actually referring to sort of the same thing. Viraga is the abandoning of raga. And niroda is the cessation of raga, you could say, of tanha, you could say. But they both refer to nibbana. If you look at this, this is the, this is calm, etang santang, etang panitang, this is calm, this is excellent. Namely, the calming of all mental formations. Sabasankara samato, meaning the non-arising of, of sankara. coming to see that that's true peace that there's a real difference between these two types of happiness the happiness that comes from chasing from, from getting what you want and the happiness that comes from giving up wanting they're really the two happiness if you want to summarize happiness there's these two getting what you want and giving up wanting and they're very different getting what you want is fraught with stress and, and excitement in the mind it's um it's something that's actually painful if you if you examine it, if you watch it carefully. If you watch it carefully, you lose it right away, because you see it's there's there's no there's no substance to it. It it's born of delusion. At the moment when we want something, we're deluded, we're confused. As soon as you unconfuse yourself, oh wait, you say, you you'll say right away, oh wait a minute, that's not right. It's 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 almost magical. When you wake up and you're wanting something, as you're wanting, wanting, or you look at it, you see seeing, seeing. Suddenly, it it's gone because you you're awake now. Remember this: that desire, craving, wanting, relies on delusion. You could it can only arise when you're deluded. Hence, the importance of 
of uh, insight. So, um, and on the other hand, viraga niroda, the, the happiness of nibbana is absolutely contrary to that. It's it's complete. complete peace you have no no suffering it's it's something that you can't even imagine you can't possibly imagine unless you've experienced it you see because if you if you think of how long we've been in samsara without experiencing nibbana we have no we have nothing to compare it to we have no point of reference but at the moment that you experience nibbana your whole existence changes because now you have something to compare samsara to. And you will never believe that samsara can bring you happiness. You lose all concept that samsara is is a source for, for true happiness. And this is why a person who has realized Nibbana is set to enter into Parinibbana. There's no way they can they can fail to attain Parinibbana because there's no way that they can possibly go back to now that they have in their experience the cessation of suffering and so thinking of it is a useful tool to remind us because we still have habits even 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 when even after a person has attained nibbana they will still have the habits to cling to samsara so you remind yourself oh yes yes here i am getting off track again when you think of what is true peace, true happiness. The next two are are, are quite interesting. Anabhirata sanya, sabaloke anabhirata sanya, to not be uh, to not delight, perception of non-delight in the whole world. That's funny, it's even this next one is, is a mistake, we have to correct that. Anyway, the perception of non-delight. So the Buddha and the Bhikkhu gives up all delight in the world. The Buddha said, Sabe dhamma na lang All dhammas are not worth clinging to. There's, he said this is the basis of the Buddha's teaching. If you, if you know for yourself no, if you've if you've if someone come if someone comes to practice meditation and they want to know what's the theory that I need before I practice, the Buddha said, if you know if you're clear on the fact that no dhammas are worth clinging to, nothing is worth clinging to, then you've got enough. If you understand that this concept, whether you agree with it or not, then you have enough theory to begin to put into practice the Buddha's teaching. Meaning, this is the basis on which our practice should should rest understanding this idea of clinging to things and testing out this hypothesis that nothing is worth clinging to that's the framework within we should base our practice so that when we approach moment to moment experience we uh, we see it in terms of the clinging and and we um, examine the state of clinging and reacting and and so on and come to see why it is that nothing is worth clinging to. 
So we we look at what it is that we cling to. What it is? What is it in the world that we cling to? That we delight in, and we give it up. So these two actually go together. Anabhirata, the next one is not anicca sanya. I'm I'm quite sure it's anitta sanya. Anitta. Itta means that which is delightful. Anitta means that which is not delightful. So anabhirata means non-delight in the world. And uh, anitta uh, means not worth delighting in. So the, the first one is about the the fact that we don't delight in it. And the second one is that sankharas are not worth delighting in. When you come to see that sankharas are... Uh, when you become to be ashamed and disgusted or disgusted by them, just repulsed by them. When you And it, it's, it's not an anger-based, but you become uninterested, as we talked about yesterday. Anyway, um, the final one is Anapanasati. Anapanasati is the Buddha's, you might say the Buddha's favorite meditation technique, the one that he, you might say, recommended the most. And it's because, well, it's, it's, it's also what was often practiced even at the time, probably before the Buddha, but it's because the breath is always there. It's the most natural object when you're sitting still. You want to contemplate reality. What's the most natural object? Well, there's, there's really very little besides the breath that you could be mindful of. You could be aware of the feeling of sitting on the ground. You could be aware of the f stress in the back. But the most obvious is the breath. So the... The benefit of, of of anapanasati depends on how you approach it. If you approach it as a concept, breath going in, breath going out, it can calm you. But if you approach it as a reality, the sensation caused by the breath going in and the breath going out, which is the true experience, the reality of the experience, then it leads to insight. So this is why we have people focus on the rising and falling of the stomach. It's actually it's quite easy to understand this as anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. But it's a form of mindfulness of breathing that is based on ultimate reality. It's the actual experience of the stomach getting larger and the stomach getting smaller. You could also focus on the, the heat and the cold, but if you're focusing on the going in and the going out, it's a concept, and it will only make the mind calm. To, to to understand reality, you have to um, use anapanasati as a means of, of of observing ultimate reality, the the sensations, the the four elements. Anapanasati is is an incredible tool. Just watching the stomach, for example, watching the stomach rising and falling, just doing it a few times is of incredible benefit. In the rising and the falling, you can find all of the 37 bodhipakya dhamma. You can find all, the whole truth of reality. Nibbana can be attained just by watching the stomach rise and fall. It's that incredible. People ask about how you, you know, they practice meditation, but they have a hard time seeing impermanent suffering and non-self. 
except intellectually. And the funny thing is they often have a hard, they say I have a hard time because the stomach is, you know, it's not constant, it's always changing, you know, it's it's stressful, it's not comfortable, you know, and you can't force it, you can't control it, you can't keep the breath the way it is. So, so how are you going to see the truth of life if you have to deal with these, right? So they're totally, totally missing the object of the practice. The object is to see these things. Focusing on the stomach is one of the best ways to see impermanent suffering and non-self, to teach the mind that this is the way things work. This is the way the stomach works and everything else. It's impermanent, it's suffering, and it's non-self. It's not worth clinging to. So just watching the stomach rise and fall will give you an incredible insight into impermanent suffering and non-self, into the nature of reality, and lead you rapidly towards the goal of freedom from suffering and peace and happiness. So those are the ten sanya. It's quite a lot to take in, but whatever. It's uh, not that you have to me memorize all ten of these or remember them, but they're good things to think of, and so we've had some time now to to reflect on them. Now, hopefully, we can put at least some of them into practice and use them as a as at least an encouragement in our practice, reason to practice. Why should we be practicing? Because these are reality. You can't deny any of the things in those ten sanya. You can't deny that they are the, the nature of reality. And that many of our understandings, many of our perceptions of reality are false. So Buddhism, as I've said before, is a study. You're studying. And why are you studying? Because you you we have a very strong misunderstanding about reality. That's how we got here in the first place. That's how we give that's why we have our mental problems, our sufferings, our stresses in life. Because we have a profound misunderstanding about reality. How can you overcome a profound misunderstanding about reality? You have to study reality. And as you study it, you will overcome and give up and be free from this misunderstanding. That's the goal of meditation. So, without further ado, let us meditate and study ourselves together. <laughs>